Do you remember the Reebok pump? Of course I do. It was D Brown, the uh, Celtics player who premiered it in the NBA. I really wanted the pump. And I think the closest I ever got to the pump was the pay less shoes version of the pump when it came out <laughs> and I was in like fifth grade and the pump had been really hot when I was in kindergarten. What's up boss? This is Abraham's wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the Abraham's Wallet podcast. This is a place where we talk about running your family and running your money because we believe that you have not only an opportunity but a responsibility to lead well in your domain, in your kind of empire that is being crafted around you. Now, Mark, earlier today, yes. I texted you based on some troubling headlines that we've seen recently. I said, Christianity is a goner. And you said, hard disagree, which I thought was very masculine of you. So what are you talking about? Oh, you, what you texted me was about this stud of a Anglican priest who was encouraging people in the UK, right? To have yes. lots of kids. And he, I found out about him because of Rod Dreher. Yes. For what that's worth. He got lots and lots of pushback on Twitter for putting up a tweet that said you should have as many kids as you can. And they were all other priests and women who were calling themselves priests uh, <laughs> of the Anglican Church in England um, saying, this is horrible, this is irresponsible, the climate can't take us having that many more kids, the, the best thing you can do is have no kids, all sorts of terrible takes. Um, and I just love, I think once you really, once you really come to the point where you don't care that the people who hate what you say um, are going to run around with their their hair on fire when you say it. Mm -hmm. It's super freeing because you don't have any inclination to apologize and be like, "Oh, I, I'm sorry. Did that did that come across?" You're just like, "Yeah, you hate what I'm saying because you hate what I'm about." <laughs> and yeah, um, there's some risk there. I'm sure you don't want to say that to someone you're walking with and community and just not give a crap what they think. But anyways, on Twitter, it's generally a great, a great position to take. And well, I'll let you continue, but I'll just say I, they, they showed in Dreher's article, he showed many screenshots mm -hmm. of the tweets that people sent back at him, very upset, trying to correct him into modern thinking. And then after getting, you know, told what for by 20 different people somebody uh tweeted him directly and said care to revise your statement and i loved it. that was the first time he had chimed in and he chimed in with a one-word response no <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was great that was that was good um so that was the the article and i just think when i read all those tweets my response to you was basically that well, I don't think this this mob of people that have like the United Methodist flag and the rainbow flag in their bio is Christianity in any way, shape or form. So watching them pull their hair out does not give me any concerns that Christianity is on a downward trajectory. In fact, I think that Christianity looked at across from from the time that the world was created god's plan of redemption for the earth uh tends to lead on an uh, in an upward direction now i'm not a full blast uh post-millennial bro that says it's all just wonderful and good and you know it's getting better every day but um i do think that there's a lot of things that have to happen before christ can return according to the prophecies and the scriptures and a lot of those things involve 
you know, the, the advancing of the kingdom and the gospel up until the very last end of the age. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to sign off on Christianity is screwed quite yet. Okay. Now I appreciate that. Now I would like to, um, illuminate my position. I was reacting to both the article that we were reading where a bunch of so-called Christians are shouting this guy down and the fact that the presently the number one as of this recording the number one Christian artist on the Christian pop charts is a girl who has she's declared that she's no longer a girl in some way her sexuality is up for grabs and she she uh, has made some music saying, you know, I defy my father's beliefs. And she's now on a crusade trying to find people. I want you to affirm my position and tell me that I am that I still know God. I'm still a Christian and I I don't have to I don't have to edit my life in any way. When I and and of course, like I said, she's number one right now. Um, what I mean when I say Christianity, uh, I'm almost putting quotes around Christianity when I use the word Christianity. Christianity is not a word that occurs in the Bible. It's, it is the kind of public face of the group of people from the least to the greatest who, who claim some affiliation with, I don't know, historical, biblical, Jesus following something. So that thing, that thing altogether is publicly called Christianity. That's what people of other faiths call our faith, which I would say is the true faith. That's like it's the faith in the God. But we're called Christianity from the outside. So as I look at public pop Christianity, and in that I would include um, our, our art, our institutions, our reputation, our political cachet, that, that thing seems to be taking a nosedive. And, and let, let me just, just uh, make it explicit that the thing called Christianity, the public face of the, the way the, the public perceives our crew and the kingdom could actually be moving in opposite directions. So I would agree with you that the kingdom is always on the rise. Matthew eleven twelve, a favorite verse of mine, says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and men of force or men of violence or forceful men take it. Violent men take it by force. That's, that's the, the, the idea that it's been constantly advancing, that it, it, the kingdom with a capital K actually never suffers defeat. It never goes into a battle and, and, and hangs its head. It always wins. So I don't mean, I don't mean that. I just mean this thing, this thing called, called Christianity that's in the public sphere, this thing that would, that would bark at this guy for recommending, uh, having children and raising a family, um, this thing that goes, we, we no longer, uh, all of these old antiquated ideas that come from the Bible about what sexuality is, well, those are, those are gone. That thing, whatever that thing is, that thing is, is crashing in an ugly uh, Hindenburg kind of way. That was my comment. Because we are students of culture. I, I think that if you are running a household, you're a student of culture. Because you care about the people that are on your downline, you want to know what's happening, and you want to give a biblical refutation for it, or a biblical explanation for, for what's going on. So, I, I'm everybody I know that's aware that 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 is trying to follow the Lord and is aware of culture has some interest in the character of Dave Chappelle. Now, Dave Chappelle is an Ohio guy. He he he's lives an hour north of me and he's he is of interest he's just a he's just a comedian and who once had a tv show he is of interest 
because as we're watching sort of the takedown culture happen, he is somebody who has, um, how could I say this? I, I would say he has righteously stood against it. Um, by that I mean, it's not that he has a he has opposed people who are trying to take him down just because he's offensive or he has done or done something that we would uh, we would say is perverse or something. You know, um, what he's done is poked fun at political correctness in a in a kind of a Bill Maher sort of a way. Um, and if if transgenderism is the is the uh, soup du jour of what our culture is currently throwing its arms around, he has poked he has poked his finger in that eye a couple of times, um, and they've they have tried to take him down. He had a Netflix special. He was I mean he's on this huge platform. People are trying to take him down, and he's. If you see, if you care about this story, his explanation is incredibly gracious. He's incredibly um, caring. I mean, I think we can say that. And yet, he refused to bow. He refuses to bow to to the people who tell him to, you know, apologize for anything you ever said and go away. So, he's interesting from that perspective. Now, the, the side issue here, side issue. One of my sort of hobbies, something I'm very interested in, is stand-up comedy. So that's just a world that I pay attention to. I'm very interested in it as an art form. I think it's an amazing thing that a single person can walk into a room, hold the attention of a thousand people with nothing but their words for an hour, and the people are sad when it's over. This this isn't a this isn't a lecture series where you kind of go, okay, that was good for me, but you know, okay, I'm. I got it, and let's go eat dinner. You're like, dang it, Jerry Seinfeld is done for the night. Oh, that was so great. I wish there was more. Well, uh, anyways, so I'm interested, and I'm a a communication guy. These people are some of the the best in that arena. Anyways, so with these kind of worlds kind of crossing over, I was very circumspect. I was very kind of alert and interested and a little hesitant but a friend and I went to this a couple of days ago we went to see Dave Chappelle here in Cincinnati because he was showing his a documentary that he has made that no distributors want to pick up at the minute so he's touring the country showing this documentary overcharging people for the right to watch his movie and then he comes out and gives some comments so I went thinking, and I actually told my friend that I went with, like, there's a, I've seen, I haven't seen everything that this guy's done. I've seen enough to know we might be walking out. I just, I just want you to know that I, I do have that bullet in my holster. We, we might walk out. And we went, and uh, it was certainly a um, fascinating cultural study just to kind of be, I, I just didn't, I didn't know what the environment would be like. It was a it was a very black culture environment, which I'm comfortable in, no problem there. But it was very much, hey, look, we're. I mean, he had two musical guests come out, Bone Thugs and Harmony. He actually, had four four guests come out, uh, Cleveland's own Bone Thugs and Harmony, and he had Erica Badu come out. So, okay, so. You know, that's the scene. And there's people around me who are just reciting every lyric from all of these songs. And I'm going like, not very familiar with this music personally. All right. It was very interesting. Um, but the, 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 the sort of bottom line, if you are a cultural observer and just would like to know, I'm thinking of myself listening to this going like, well, I'd love to know how that went and what happened. I would just say that the film itself what was not politically incorrect in any way it championed all the right things um all the right slogans he didn't he didn't repeat any of his the any of the kind of jokes that got him in trouble he actually said on his way at one of the last things he said was if you're a young comic who's getting started take it from me don't do transgender jokes that was one of the last things he said and it was sort of like this really kind of like 
I don't know, for me, it was a sour taste in my mouth because we're all thinking like, I even spoke to the people sitting around me going like, why are you here? How are you feeling about the state of things? And, and, and it's clear that a lot of Chappelle's appeal right now is that he's willing to stand against nonsensical cancellation, et cetera. And he believes in, you know, free speech, et cetera. So anyways, that, that, that would be, I mean, that was an, a definitive, there's no definitive stance from him. I just thought, oh, this is a, this is just like a comedy show with a couple of, of musical acts. It, it felt very, it felt very PC actually. So I thought that was interesting to report from a cultural standpoint. So I thought I would. Yeah. I'm glad that Do you, you think that's interesting. Should, should, should we keep this in? I, I think so. It's interesting to me because we talked about it before you went and I said, I bet you walk out because I walked out when I went and saw Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan. And I thought, man, I hate everything that guy said. Who Was he the instigator of, of the filthiness? It was. It was Chappelle. He just, uh, he went on and on about not telling jokes just ranting about how his his abortion views and oh boy it was yeah. too much but uh yep. i in in other comedy news though i just dropped a little too <laughs> much money to go to get tickets to see nate bargazzi when he comes to salt lake oh i was just complimenting him to uh the, the friend that i went with yeah he's delightful and i'll drop I'll drop another comedy name. My wife's sitting here in the room with me right now, trying to get work done while I talk. And um, I just realized I went on my like Ticketmaster app last night and realized I did not remember having done this. But guess what? Our family's going to uh, Jim Gaffigan tomorrow night here in Cincinnati. I actually bought tickets. I know we talked about it, and and I said I I said I don't want to do it. I'm too tired right now. But apparently I bought tickets months ago. So we're going to go see Jim Gaffigan and you're going to go see Nate. Is he coming to Salt Lake City? Yeah, uh, he's coming to Salt Lake. We're kicking off a series. Yeah, tell us about it. Well, I think that somebody, I think it was on Jeremy Pryor's Facebook homeroom or maybe one of his podcast groups where I saw somebody asking does anybody have resources on how to train kids with money? And I thought, oh, I'll just grab all the stuff we've done on that. And I was shocked and appalled to realize, while I think we have peppered a lot of our content with information about how to start developing your kids' skills when it comes to managing money, we've never done a dedicated series of podcasts or blogs uh, on this topic. So we're going to talk about why you would train your kids with money and then go through a few specifics on here's an arena that you need to be training your kids in and here's some ideas on how to do it. Fantastic. I think it's a needed thing um, because for a couple of reasons. One, because um, it's not spoken about that was one of the reasons we started this podcast in the first place is because there are clearly biblical principles that are not spoken about. And I don't know if it's because churches just don't want to take the airtime to equip people financially because it, it question mark, maybe because of that, maybe it's because um, it doesn't help a church's bottom line for somebody to, to become financially responsible um, and to be successful in their on their own right, and I don't know, but um, so one one reason is it's simply not talked about, which seems silly to me that people wouldn't talk about how to train your children um, to be financially literate and to be financially savvy, because here's another maybe it's not talked about because one one thing that we clearly have lost we've talked about this a lot is the the whole idea of legacy the whole idea of handing off an inheritance that that has uh, become passe and we've talked a lot about inheritance and I would just like to suggest this is part and parcel of that conversation so if you believe in a verse like Proverbs thirteen twenty two, a classic which says a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children 
if you believe in that, then let, as we, we've talked about this before, this has been one of the uh, uh, grains of pepper that you, that you refer to. We've asked, why would you hand down a packet of money, ideas, relationships, physical capital, spiritual capital? Why would you put that in somebody's hands who is going to fritter it away because they're not equipped to handle it? That's why we're talking about this because there is some kind of um, reputation that giving your children a whole bunch of money is somehow really crass, it's worldly, it's, it's irresponsible, it, it'll make them worldly, as opposed to the biblical idea that, well, second, uh, sorry, yes, second Timothy 3.17. So, Second Timothy 3.16, we all know, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We all know that. Okay, great. The Bible is good. But verse 17 says, So that, okay, let me just read this passage again. All scripture, it is referring, referring to holy scripture, is God-breathed and is useful te for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training we might ask the question, to what ends? Well, here's the ends that Paul gives us in the very next verse. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So thorough equipping is part of what we're after here. We want thoroughly equipped children. We want them equipped in every arena. We want them equipped in how to handle every capital. And that's part of our responsibility as, as parents. Do you have a different or better answer to the question, why train your children in how to handle money? I agree with everything you just said. I think that you could, you could stop at why train your children, and that would probably be somewhat controversial uh, Good point. in our time. But you're in charge of <laughs> equipping your kids in every arena, and just to beat the drum that we always beat here, we don't think money is the most important, but it is certainly one of the foundational training grounds for handling more important things in the kingdom. And so if you're in charge of instilling in your kids anything that needs to be instilled in them, and I think you are, um, then why would you ever say, well, I think they'll just learn money from personal finance class in, in high school, or, you know, they're going to have to make some mistake. They're going to have to get a credit card oh, and I run love it that up. One. And I love and, that. You know, I did. And, and yep. I had to learn. And I turned way. out all right. Um, we're not supposed to recreate ourselves guys. We're supposed to get better every generation. That is the way that we separate uh, noble, righteous families from the the general crowd is that we get to do this hyper fast evolution because we learn things and then we make our kids better than us. Uh, it's, yeah, it's Shabbat today, and one of the things that I will bless my kids with when I lay my hands on them is, uh, may you be more successful than your parents in every way, and may you hear the voice of the Lord better than we do and be quicker to obey than we are, all those things. Mm -hmm. So I think that when it comes to money, um, you know, maybe you, you're nodding your head and just fist pumping along. Yes, we want to train our kids, but yes, you don't want to train our kids. It's hard to come up with strategies that really work sometimes. It's really hard. I think a lot of the reason that parents skip this is because money is hard to understand and communicate around when you're three. Um, and we just say, oh, we'll get to, we want to train them. We'll get to that when they're old enough to understand. And before you know it, they're 18 and you never got around to it and they're out of the house and they get to go make the same mistakes you made. So I think our goal here is to to give you some tangible strategies over the next few weeks that you can use, even if you have a four-year-old at the house um, or if you have a 17-year-old who's only got a year left in the house before, yes. before maybe they're going to go do something else. So um, yeah, I think it's valuable 
and you know we want to we want to be really good at handling money so that we can actually be entrusted with things that matter like men's hearts yes so back to our uh, our anglican uh priest um i just want to ring this little bell for i know that we've had we've had uh episodes talking about legacy and inheritance but the way that we form our children and hand them off to the Lord's care as we age is such a major part of our relationship with God. It's a major part of the disciple making that we're supposed to be doing. And I would like to borrow from a little chapter of our namesake's life, Abraham. This is before he was Abraham. And you might know this anecdote, um, you might not. Um, it's not one of the 10 Bible stories that gets endlessly talked about and in the church house. So this is, this is Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, now imagine God coming to you and saying this to you and how satisfying it would be. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your reward for your obedience shall be very great. And we can imagine that if you heard God appear to you and say these words to you, how satisfying it would be, how it would completely satiate you, and you would go, well, Lord, that's good enough for me. I could never ask for anything more. Thank you. I shall treasure your blessing. But our hero, Abram, did something completely shocking after God gave him this wonderful blessing and told him, Abram, I personally am your shield and your reward is going to be very great. Here's what Abram said to him. Imagine, imagine the impudence of saying this back to the God who had just spoken to you. Abram said, Lord God, what reward will you give me? Since I am leaving this world childless, and who, pray tell, will be the owner and heir of my house? Is it going to be my servant Eleazar from Damascus? And Abram continued, Since you have given no child to me, a servant born in my house is going to be my heir. And spat on the ground. No, that's not there. But you can imagine... Abram is crossing his arms, looking at the Lord going, I very much appreciate the blessing. Thank you. And what is the repository for this blessing that you're supposedly giving me? Because I have no heir. And so what, what, is, what happens to my family? What, what, what happens to this, this great relationship that I have with you? What's the end of it? And he, and he throws it back on the Lord. Again, imagine the the cojones of this guy, the cuevos, as we say in Espanol, to say this to God, yeah, but I don't have an heir. Where's my son? And the biblical value of having an heir that you have crafted into a, a, a giant righteous bowl so that all of your generation's values, um, equipment, Assets, everything can sit in that bowl, and you know that it's not going to be wasted. It's going to, it's going to not only hold it, but it's going to be reproduced, as you just said, Mark, with increased value, with increased refinement, with increased glory, if I may say. So, this is a huge thing that we can't underline enough that whoever's on your downline, and I do believe that we have physical children as well as spiritual children that we take care of to varying degrees, but your spiritual, your, your, sorry, your physical children, my goodness, the way that you prepare them and educate them and train them to know God is a massive thing. Um, Proverbs 22, 6. This isn't something that you get to opt in or out of based on whether you think that uh, you're a, a, a graduate student in, in, the Christian life or not. Here's the command. 
train up a child. That's a, that's a command. Train up a child in the way he should go, teaching him to seek God's wisdom and will for his abilities and his talents. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there's a command. Train up your child. And so I hope we would ask the question, how would I train them and in what should I train them? And those, both of those questions are things that we try, to, we try to encourage you and equip you in. So we believe in the training up of a child. I'll just make one last point before we get into, I want to hear a little bit of Mark's story. He has talked, he's talked before about his father in particular um, training him to work with money and handle money. I'm very interested in knowing the, what, what his father did. Maybe we'll be hearing more of those as the um, as the series goes along, but I'll just throw out that that if we are making disciples out of our children, then we're discipling them to follow God in all five of the capitals. How do I follow God spiritually? How do how do I personally have a relationship with Him and His Word? I, I'm training them relationally. How do I have uh, good relationships with my spouse, with 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 our children's children, with their friendships, with their bosses or coworkers or employees. We want to train them in relationships. We want to train them in their physical capital. We want to train them in intellectual capital. We want to train them um, in finances as well. It's part of the discipleship package. And anybody who doesn't think that it's an important part you haven't suffered as somebody who wasn't trained in finances and had to suffer the consequences. Anybody that has would tell you uh, this is important. So when we hear that we're supposed to train people so that in God's word, so they'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work, going back to Second Timothy 3, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you don't think the ability to maintain a budget is a good work, that pleases God, then you haven't suffered under parents who didn't keep a budget. You don't. You, then you don't appreciate that it is a good work. It's it's one of the good works that you would take care of money, that you would multiply money, that you would be a giver because you have so much. There's an abundance that you can share with those around you in need. These are good works. So if we want our children thoroughly equipped to do every good work, then. Uh, we should be very interested in answering the question, how shall I train them and in what way? So that, that's all I want to say in, in, as far as the reasoning for why we should be interested in giving our kids some financial uh, training. I'll, I'll also say Mark and I are so interested in this that um, Mark started a, a course that we have been building for uh, high school students, we're aiming it at juniors and seniors in high school, that that they can do financial literacy, and and we believe again that there are biblical principles for financial literacy that are just largely left on the table that are not being exploited to train young people in how to honor God with their money for the rest of their life. So we get very um, granular, we get very specific in. Work and income, um, your education, how do you handle money as it comes in? We want students actually forecasting a budget for their lives, making a balance sheet for their lives. Talk to them about how to spend money, how to invest money, how to handle taxes, how to handle credit in a wise and shrewd way, how to how to um, steer clear of financial pitfalls, and how to handle credit cards and you name it, the the whole gamut. We, we believe that all of these things should be taught and trained to our kids. Okay, that, sorry for going on so long, but... No, I uh, think and, that's all... And by the way... That's all good setup. Someday, uh, we'll publish this thing. We're, we're trying to crack it, and we, we want it sold to Christian schools and to homeschoolers, and that's, that's, the kind of, that's, that's kind of the way that we're going, because we're going to be explicit about Scripture as we go in it. So, okay, that's enough for me. Mark... Talk to us about, I think you had, my, my parents were pretty good about uh, training me financially, but I think your father was even better. 
So give us some give us some anecdotes. Yeah, uh, I think next week or next time we talk about this, we're going to talk more on the tactics for specific stages. Um, yeah. But I would say that my house, you know, there was things about my upbringing where we did not have a great culture in the home. But but when it comes to money and how to handle it wisely, I would say that um, particularly my dad really did create a culture um, that was positive. And um, I, I would say that... Um, it wasn't like some master plan. Maybe I'll talk to him. He's going to be here in a few days for Thanksgiving, and maybe I'll ask him some questions and follow up with you guys about what were your... What was he thinking? Yeah, yeah. How much of this was planned that would be interesting. versus not. But w- what I do know is that he, was, he would get very uh, um, intentional about sharing things with me that he was thinking about on whatever level was appropriate. So... Uh, one of my early memories of him getting excited about something with regard to personal finance was, do you remember the book, The Millionaire Next Door? Oh, yes. We've got it. Yeah. And I think it's a great book. Some of it might be a little bit outdated to our listeners now because it was written when I was a young lad. But uh, (laughs) it's the, the premise is that most millionaires in the United States uh, live in a way that you would never guess by looking at, at kind of their house or their car or things like that, that they were yes. millionaires. And so it's an interesting book, just kind of an, in the vein of a Freakonomics or something about how do the people who actually have some wealth live. Um, and I remember my dad getting very excited when he read that book. And it, mm-hmm. I didn't find out until I was an adult just how much he had really taken to heart some of the principles in that book because I always told people, hey, we're just kind of average middle class Americans. Um, but he really did take take to heart a lot of the things in that book and um, lived significantly below his means um, for a very long time. Um, did he grow up with money? No, I think he grew up in a family where I think I've talked about it in the past. My grandfather worked for Procter and Gamble after World War II. Uh, for a very long time as a traveling salesman uh, and then had a career after that as the mayor of San Angelo, Texas. Yes, um, indeed. But I, I don't think he grew up in a in an environment where he was wanting for things, but he certainly wasn't expecting, you know, luxuries as a child or a teenager. So um, I think he grew up in a family that probably unlike mine, although I didn't know it, um, when my parents told me no, they were choosing to not give me everything I wanted. With his parents, they probably didn't have the money for real. Right. When, when he asked for, you know, a new car when he was 16 or whatever he might have asked for. Um, my hunch is he never asked for something like that. But um, he didn't come from money, but I think he came from a family that, that had lived through the Depression and knew how to, to kind of going back to your point, manage a budget. Um I remember my parents sitting down and balancing the checkbook and doing the budget. And instead of yes. disappearing for that, as I got older, I was invited to learn about what they were doing. Um, I'm sure that was initial seeds being planted of my budget obsessions these days and the fact that I love <laughs> budgeting. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I saw my dad use that gifting um, in other places, I remember when the church they were going to was going to, to take on a big building project, he would volunteer time to, to help them manage that project and be f- smart financially. And he was an architect by training, so also on the whole building process. Um, so there was a lot of things, but it, it would just kind of, I would say the, the, the primary was creating a culture where talking about money was not taboo and came up. Yeah. So, I mean, shoot, we talk about sneakers once in a while on the show. I remember when the the pump came out. Do you remember the pump? Of course I do. The Reebok pump. Um, It was D. Brown, who was the uh, Celtics player who premiered it in the NBA. 
and he made a big show of pumping up his shoes before his uh, attempts in the uh, slam dunk competition. Yeah, and uh, I really wanted the pump. And I think the closest I ever got to the pump was the pay less shoes version of the pump when it came out (laughs) and I was in like fifth grade and the pump had been really hot when I was in kindergarten. So, um, things like that actually did impact my money kind of concept as a kid because, uh, I just grew up knowing that this was a resource that was not infinite. And I think a lot of times, even middle-class Americans now don't communicate that to their kids. Um, I read somewhere the other day that theft of goods is dramatically down over the past decade. Uh, And the reason being not because people have become more moral, but everything is more accessible. So, You could steal a television. You could Mm. break into someone's house and steal a television. And you're taking some risk that you're going to go to jail for that. But you can also just get a credit card and buy that television and not pay for it ever. And you're kind of taking a similar risk um, that that you're going to get in trouble, but but you might not. Uh, And that's kind of true with our kids. I think it's true with people is that you see luxury goods on it's no longer a way to differentiate oneself uh, from the upper and middle class. It used to be, oh, if you have that pair of shoes, you know, you must be a member of the elite class because a middle class person couldn't afford those. Now everyone can afford almost everything, uh, you know. So uh, whether they can afford it or not, they have access to it is a better way to say it. Um, So... I think that's a really dangerous thing, and I think that we'll we'll get into that when we talk tactics a bit more. But figuring out a way to communicate that money is a scarce resource that needs to be stewarded uh, is going to be very key with smaller kids to creating good stewards in your household because the default, the river flows in kind of the default direction right now of teaching them that money is just infinite. And I really think that's true, whether you make 60 Mm. grand a year or 500 grand a year, that your kids are going to sort of feel like, well, I can kind of, you know, mom and dad go on Amazon, they click some buttons and the stuff shows up, uh, whatever we need. Um, and if we don't have money for it, then they get stressed because they have to pay off credit card bills. But I know that's not all of our Abe's wallet listeners, but I think it is more, common than you guys might even realize in your own homes that kids might be subtly learning the lesson that money is not all that scarce. And okay. And what do you say about the, um, accusation that by, by explicitly training your kids about money, you will make them money focused and they will worship money. I think that's like saying, explicitly training your kids how to steward any of the the tools that we have at our disposal might make them fall in love with it. I also teach my kids what uh, a good and healthy ethic looks like when it comes to sex. They could take that and go, mom and dad have taught us that sex is really good and let's go get some food. Like we really love to make delicious food. I'm about to go as soon as we wrap this up, start smoking some salmon on, on the smoker. And, and your kids are super fat though, right? They're like obese. (laughs) I am the only obese child in the parent house, Uh, (laughs) but we, we delight in good food. The kids know dad loves fancy, delicious wine. We, they know that. But we're always talking about how to steward our relationship to food. Like wine is a gift that gladdens the heart of man. But kids, there is a big, big ditch on this one and you need to watch out for it. Uh, And some people need to just avoid it altogether. So I think those are all terrific examples. Sex, food, alcohol, that... We want them to be aware of the power of all of those things. We want them seen in the light 
of what what Paul said to Timothy, which is everything that God has made is good if it is received through the word of God and prayer. And I'll just say to any parents, it's true for you and I as well. The things that we say to our kids will always be overshadowed by the way that we live. And they will always interpret what we say through the lens of how we live. So if we say to them that um, money is money is just one of the things that we're given to use, but your life looks like we worship money and we'll sacrifice everything at the altar of money, they'll believe that money is all powerful, no matter what you say. But if you if what you model for them is that well well, we we have this resource and we're to steward it responsibly. That's their worldview. That's how they'll see things. And I heard Tommy Nelson long time ago describing that Paul said to Timothy regarding the Christian faith, you know those from whom you learned it. It was his mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice, I believe, or might have those names mixed up. He says, you know those from whom you learned it, and you know the Holy Scriptures. And and Tommy thought that was fascinating, how it actually put the person first before the, actually the Holy Scriptures. Because if you have somebody in your life that twists and perverts the Scriptures, you'll distrust the Scriptures because of that person. So it's of utmost importance that we train our children how we live but yes we've got to give them the scriptural background for it as well to support the way that we're living so again we come back to thoroughly equipped for every good work yeah my best example of what you're saying when i was truck shopping a couple years ago i remember truck shopping and i truck shopping I don't know if we have if we have that background music or if we have to use your your uh, composition there, but I, I I was looking for a truck and we started noticing that my oldest and my middle daughter we would be driving around and they'd be like see that that's a sixty two thousand dollar truck right there and that's <laughs> a and I Amelia and I looked at each other and we're like what the heck are the, who cares guys stop it stop talking about how much <laughs> everybody's car costs and I realized oh. I've been talking about how much cars cost <laughs> because they didn't, they're, they're not subscribing to, to four by four magazine. These kids, uh, right. everything they know is coming from me and right. Uh, they're good little reflectors to kind of yep. go, uh, we've been a little bit too focused. You know, that's probably my tendency is to, some people don't think about how much stuff costs at all. Me, I'm more likely to accidentally, over focus and talk about how much stuff costs way too much Uh, yeah but we noticed in our kids there was this what i think was unhealthy uh obsession with the cost of things and they would say oh my friend's family has an escalade and that's a ninety thousand dollar car or whatever i don't remember and right it was kind of like uh we have created little little people who took something that we thought (laughs) had a good place which is let's be aware and not not go out and waste our money and i'm sure i would drive by a truck and be like well if i bought that it'd cost this much i'm not going to do that but they were taking it now as well this is a an indicator of value and some of our friends have a lot of it evidently because look at all these fancy cars and I guess that's just a good way to take the temperature of your family culture on money is when, when anything comes up around money, what kind of talk is it and do you like it or not? And if the answer is kind of like ours in that situation, we don't really like the way that this is going. That's wonderful. It's great to notice that and go right now. And I'm going to just leave you with the cliffhanger to next week. How do we train our kids to have a healthy relationship and understanding of money. How do we put it in their hands at the right time and the right amounts? Uh, and how do we, you know, if we operate in diverse socioeconomic groups where maybe there's people in our lives who have gobs of money or some who have very little, how do we train them to talk about it in a way that's not divisive and that actually is encouraging and all that stuff. So that's what we're going to talk about next week is specific tactics. 
Love it. So this is the why. Why train your children to handle money? Um, and our short answer is because we're in the disciple making business and and we want to make disciples who are thoroughly equipped for every good work and it's part of life and they need to hear God's truth from the most authoritative source possible in their lives which is their parents so we got to be about that I'm just thinking about the fact that when I took my my oldest daughter on a date I think she was eight years old at the time she looks at the menu and she's like, I'm going to have the smoked octopus. And the waiter looked at us like, what, what's going on right now? And I was like, <laughs> no, she's got quite a palate. And sometimes with food, it's kind of obvious that we tell kids, well, just take the, take the stuff that will satisfy you now. That's not actually the right. good stuff. And right. There's something to be said for whether you should do that or not. I'm not here to judge if you give your kids chicken nuggets while you eat ribeye. But uh, there's probably a truth in that, uh, that we want, even when it comes to money or all the other good stuff we talked about that can be bad if it's not handled well. Yes. It's like we want to give our kids tastes of the really good stuff so that they don't settle for the chicken nuggets or the mac and cheese. And I think that's good. I think with money, it's very easy to develop a culture of money in your house that feels like the chicken nugget culture where you're like, well, this is dangerous and we don't, we don't understand it all that much and we don't have the time to get into the weeds with it. So let's just take this. It will, it will work and it'll keep you, keep you happy and, uh, it'll keep you out of danger, but you never really get to experience the goodness of somebody who understands the ins and outs of creating a fabulous meal and what flavors go together. And, you know, I think with money, it's like, once you really know how to handle it, you can operate with it in such a free way that freedom, you get, you can be generous and you don't have to worry. Well, I got some of this and if I let it out of my hands, I don't know how to get any more. Right. So that's what I'm looking forward to in this series. That's great. We should, we should end right there. Um, that what's coming is uh, hopefully some tools that you can use to make your children um, sit down to the ribeye stake of financial fullness and abundance under God's rule so that they can enjoy the life that's before them and the inheritance that's going to be coming their way. So tune in next week. We'll talk about tactics See you then. All right. Thanks.